Amen. You may be seated. We are glad that you are with us today. My name is Stephen, and I am one of the pastors here, and we are almost finished with the sermon series that we have been talking about and preaching on all summer called Vices and Virtues. And what we've been saying throughout the course of this series is that vices and virtues are basically the same thing, just moving in opposite directions. They're a pattern of actions, uh, a character trait that gets developed through a series of, of habits that you develop that ultimately they begin to form your character. And your character can be formed away from the person of Christ, or your character can be formed towards the person of Christ. And depending on which direction those habits are forming your character, they get categorized as vices or virtues. And so we've been walking through a series of vices. You may know them as the seven deadly sins. This is the list we've been working through. Uh, Just so you know where you are this morning, uh, you missed lust last week. So if you're new and this is your first time, you're like, yes, made it. But what that means is today we get to talk about We get to talk about greed. We get to talk about money. So some of you were like, oh, I knew it. We should have gone to brunch. But let me just uh, make a couple of disclaimers this morning. So, you know, money is always a weird thing to talk about in church or if you've grown up in a tradition where money and the sermons about money have always used as kind of like this leverage to make you feel guilty so that you'll give more money to the church. That's not what we're here to do this morning. So everybody's off the hook. We're still going to pass the offering baskets around at the end of the service. But this whole thing is not designed to make you feel guilty about giving money to the church. What it is designed to do, though, is to remind us that money is a tool. And the way that we hold this tool and the way that we use this tool uh, has consequences. And it can lead us into constructive and benevolent paths and you know, areas or it can work against us and it can start to corrode and corrupt our heart. We're not really talking about specifically the actions, but with this series, like everything else, it's ultimately about our heart and the desires, the longings, the loves of our heart and putting those back in proper order. So we said way back in the beginning of this series is that ultimately all of these vices stem from a disordering of our loves. The way that we are designed is to love God, to love others, to love ourselves, and each of these vices reorders and disorders those loves so that, surprise, surprise, we love self first and then some order of God and others, but they come a distant second and a distant third to ourselves. And so this is basically what we're going to do as we talk about greed this morning. So to get us started, I thought we would begin with a little exercise. Uh, Show a hand this morning if you would identify as a greedy person. Let me see those hands. Hi. That's kind of what I thought might happen. Yeah, not a lot of self-disclosure and self-identification is greedy this morning. Now, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I think the first is, well, we don't want to admit it. But the second and more interestingly, I think it's because when we typically associate the idea of greed, we go to the furthest extreme and the furthest example. You know, we think of the Scrooge, the miser, the person who they're like, totally consumed by acquiring more and more and more. Maybe you're thinking of people who run, you know, multinational corporations, people that are on the Forbes list. Maybe that's where you go when you think about greed. But rarely do we think about and identify with greed in our own life. I think that's one reason why greed is kind of hard to self-identify. I think the other reason is because 
And as we'll unpack this, a more accurate description of greed actually just looks like normal society and normal culture. This idea of we need more so that we can become more, so that we feel safe and secure, well, that, that's just how we're supposed to live, right? You know, as you continue to upgrade your life and as you get more things around you, you build a better nest egg, you have a more solid financial foundation. All of these things sound like good financial practices. And I'm not saying that they're not. But oftentimes they also kind of hide and mask a little bit of that vice of greed that kind of lurks in our heart. Now, famously, maybe y'all remember and are familiar with the character Gordon Gecko in the movie Wall Street. I think there's a famous speech that, that Michael Douglas's character here kind of shares in the movie Wall Street. And I think it's like symbolizes and summarizes kind of our culture's understanding of greed. So here are these words. This is what he says in kind of a stockholder meeting where he's kind of a corporate raider and he's trying to take over this company, Teldar Paper. And this is what he says. He kind of gets up and makes this real passion speech. He says, the point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. All of that alliteration, it's good. Greed in all of its forms, greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the surge of mankind upward. And greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar Paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Thank you very much to rapturous applause. People celebrate him as he makes this impassioned speech. Now, I think we would probably recognize that defined as greed, we'd probably want to keep our distance. We'd probably be like, yeah, I don't know that greed's good. But the, the effects of greed, the motivations, some of those things we would probably recognize in our culture. is like, yeah, that's probably a good thing. I'm inspired to work hard, to strive, to earn, to support my family, to do good things in the world. That, that's kind of marked by that fuel for acquisition, right? That fuel for more. But if that's true, then we have to try to reconcile why scripture takes such a hard line against the stewardship of money. Over 800 times, scripture references money, the use of money, the effects of money, the dangers of money, and it is the second most common topic that scripture talks about. Far more than sex, which we talked about last week. Well, why is this? I think there is something, and there has been something, dangerous about greed and the way that it secretly and subtly can corrupt the human heart. But oftentimes masked as good things, as positive things, until it's often too late. So kind of for the sake of the conversation this morning, kind of the two questions that we should be asking is first, well, okay, then what, what is it exactly? And how do we identify it in our life? Well, Christian thought and tradition has been wrestling with the vice of greed for a thousand plus years. And Thomas Aquinas defines greed as this, and this is the definition that we'll be using this morning. He defines greed as the excessive love or desire for money or any possession money can buy. Now here's where all of us, well-meaning Christians, start to, start to wanna like ask for some nuance. Well, what is excessive? 
Where do you draw the line with excessive love or desire? Are you saying that I need to renounce all of my possessions and kind of live this monastic lifestyle? Is that what the Christian understanding of how to wrestle with money, how to wrestle with greed implies? And I would say, perhaps for some, but likely not for all. You can kind of parse that out in your own conversations at home. But really, as we wrestle with this, the question is, how do we know if we have an excessive love or desire? How do we know when we are past what is healthy and normal and a reasonable kind of handling of the desire for money and the desire for things that money can buy? Now, we would recognize this form all throughout kind of our world. We, kind of, we can recognize greed in others fairly easily. It's this disproportionate fixation. It's this disproportionate desire. It's like, wow, that person shops a lot. Or, wow, they're really concerned about how much money they have in the bank or how much they're earning. They're always kind of checking in on their investment portfolio. You, you know, this like unreasonable amount of attention that's applied to kind of their financial life or acquiring more things. But really, in its more subtler forms, I think it ultimately impacts all of us. And to kind of help us in this nuance, Christian tradition and Christian thought has really kind of parsed greed into two different types, two different expressions of greed that I think will help us. And the first is a word called avarice. This is kind of consistent with the more traditional understanding of greed. This is the excessive desire to acquire and keep. I would summarize this as like crave and save. Like we want more and then we save more. This is kind of one version. We recognize people who live this way, people who we describe as miserly, people who are always kind of haggling over price, disputing kind of the savings. It's like, no, no, I had this coupon and you didn't apply the coupon or the people that you go to dinner with. And then everybody's like, yeah, just split it four ways. And they're like, uh-uh-uh-uh-uh. Give me, give me the receipt. And they start going through and they're like, well, we ordered four appetizers and I only had one bite of this appetizer. I actually didn't get any of that appetizer. And, so, and then they do all of the calculations on their phone. And then they say, okay, this is, this is actually a fairer breakdown of how we're going to divide this bill. That might start to fall into this category. You thought you were immune this morning and now it's starting to get a little uncomfortable. You're like, uh, I'm fidgeting a little bit. I'm elbowing the person next to me. It's because really, outside of the extreme versions, our desire for more, our desire for money and the things that money can get us, affect all of us. And so avarice is one example. If you are always constantly looking to upgrade your life, if you've noticed that for the last 30 years or 20 years or 15 years, you seem to have the same amount of money left over at the end of the month, despite all of the promotions and raises that you've got throughout your life, Maybe this applies to you because there's always a reason, there's always a justification to acquire, to gain, to have because ultimately it feels good to have more because even though we won't admit it, if we have more, guess what it means? It means we're more and that's where this starts to get ugly. This starts to reveal the nature and the character of our heart. We long for more because then we feel more secure. Then we feel like we are more and we want people to recognize that we're more because we have more. Yeah, we do this in not so subtle ways. Let me show people where we went on vacation. 
Now, not showing people where you went on vacation. Showing people is not bad. But when you kind of have that, like, I want to do this so everybody knows where we went so that you can get some subtle recognition for the fact that you have more or can do more or have done more than the other people around you, that's where it starts to get ugly. That's where it starts to kind of reveal the true heart and the character and nature of greed. This is kind of one of the things that Christian thought and tradition has identified as an expression of greed is avarice. Then the second is a little bit different, and maybe it might be new to you, but it's called product. So I drink a lot of coffee before I get up here. Sometimes it just sucks all of the moisture out of your mouth. Prodigality. That's it. How about we all say this together so I'm not the only one who can't say this word. Prodigality. Gosh, thank you all for being with me this morning. Solidarity, my friends. Prodigality. The excessive desire to acquire and spend. I would call this earn and burn. This is like there's always a new thing you need. There's always a new sale that you got to take advantage of. There's always these opportunities to buy and to spend. Now, I, I suffer from this a little bit. I just describe it as hobbies. And so I have a new hobby that I encounter every six months, every year. The people in my life are nodding like, yes, he's always got a new thing. And then miraculously, I get tired of that hobby and I find a new hobby to pursue. And so then I acquire all of the stuff related to that hobby. And then once I get all the stuff, I'm like, well, this isn't fun anymore. And so let me find another hobby. And I just bounce from hobby to hobby. And so from the outside, it's like, wow, he's the most interesting man in the world. And then on the inside, you're like, he just can't stop buying stuff is really, really what's going on here. Maybe, maybe you suffer with, from this. We have whole industries that support this excessive desire to acquire and spend, credit card industries, buy now, pay later. We even have stores that allow you to buy the things that people once needed but no longer need anymore. But we don't want to call it that, so we come up with these nice fancy words like vintage or consignment. I was in a estate sale this weekend uh, because the women in my life liked estate sales, and so I like the women in my life, and so I went with them. And what I found myself realizing and recognizing as we were walking through someone's home with all of their stuff available for someone else to make it their stuff was like, this is junk. Like, this is just a bunch of junk that this person doesn't want anymore. And I was like, God, all of our stuff's eventually going to, someone's going to walk by everything that we have to have today that we don't have yet and look at it and go, why did they buy that? Like that can you believe they put that in their house? Like people showed up and this was in their home. Like somebody's going to think about that, about everything that we have. It's like, oh my God, why did we waste their money on this? But we like, it's just, it becomes so normalized that we just constantly acquire and we have a new need. And it's like, well, now I'm tired of the way this room looks, so this room should look a different way. And then we just... And we're like, some of us are like, well, yeah, but that's normal, right? That's okay, I'm not... And we're not saying you're bad. It's not like you're a terrible person because you do this. But what it is is how do we recognize the, the effects of greed on our heart? Even if we don't like to use that language, even if that feels a little too aggressive, even if it makes us feel a little uncomfortable. But how do we begin, begin to recognize that like, in our life there might be these habits, there might be these patterns that are distorting and disordering our love for money, our love for stuff, our desire for more and for more 
and for more, whether it's to keep for ourselves or whether it's just to consume and then to spend. You know, this idea of prodigality comes from the prodigal son who was just in, like insistent to his father that he get his inheritance before his father even had time to die. He was so impatient. He's like, I'm not even waiting for you to die. I want my stuff now. And then he goes and he blows it. This is that like craving, like I just need, I want. This will be fun. You get caught up in it and consumed with it. But ultimately, it's dangerous because as it distorts your habits and it disorders your loves, it reorders your focus in your life. When you are so focused on your need for more, you become consumed with yourself because life becomes about satisfying that desire to gain, to acquire, to either save or to either spend and consume. If I haven't gotten you convinced yet that maybe greed is something you wrestle with, I want to take a moment. We're going to do another little exercise. You don't have to raise your hand on this one. Uh, Imagine that somebody was allowed a full audit to all of the finances in your life. All of your bank statements, your W-2s, your tax returns, your investment portfolio, all of your credit card statements, all of the ways, all of any of the generosity that you participate in, all of those statements, all of the ways that you gain money, that you save money, and that you spend money. Imagine somebody had access to all of those accounts, and that was the only thing they knew about you. It was the only thing that they knew. They just had all of the numbers, all of the figures, and all of the accounts. What conclusions would they make about what you value? What conclusions would they make about the priorities of your family or the priorities of your life? What characteristics would they begin to use to describe the kind of person you are, the type of person you are? Even as much as we try to justify this stuff sometimes, when you strip it all out and you're just left with the details and the numbers, I think, if we're all being honest, this probably impacts us a little bit more than we want to recognize. Now, the traditional sermon would then like, have you in this emotional place. You're like, oh, I feel kind of bad about this. And then they'd flash this verse up there. And they'd say, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Let's pass the plate. You know, this is what they do. Now, this is true. This is scripture. But I think it's... Uh, a little misleading to just flash this verse up. And so what I think would be more helpful for us and the rest of our time together this morning is to show this verse in its fuller context because it's a letter written by Paul to kind of an apprentice named Timothy. And Timothy's an up-and-coming pastor, and he's kind of struggling to figure out how to guide and lead his church. And in Timothy's report back to Paul, Timothy is talking about how he lives in an affluent area and his church is an affluent church, and they are struggling to kind of understand the proper placement, the proper ordering of their love and desire for money and the things money can buy in their own life. And so Paul is writing back, giving Timothy some instruction on how he can um, preach to, guide, correct his growing church uh, according to you know, Christ-like virtues and principles. So among some of the pieces of wisdom and guidance that Paul gives Timothy one of the things that he guides Timothy through is a reminder of the proper ordering 
and the dangers of a disordering of our love for money and the things money can buy. And so this is what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. There is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. And I think ultimately at stake with greed and our desire for more is our wrestling with this idea of contentment. This other, another way to say it would be enough. Do we have enough? Well, how do we find enough? Is it, is it enough according to our desires? Is it enough according to our wants and our longings and all of the new things that we can see, all of the targeted advertisements on social media, like to know it, and all of the ways that we see new ways that we need more so that we can become more and be recognized for more? Or is there a level at which not we have what we want, but we have what we need? Where is that? What is that level for us? Depending on the country and the location you're in around the world, that level looks vastly different. And it's no surprise that our level for enough is probably far higher than most people in the world. And that's not to say that we're all terrible people, but it is to say that maybe we actually don't have that definition in a healthy place. Now, the reason for this is not because money's bad and we need to just stay away from it, but because, like we said at the beginning, money's a tool. And when we only think of money as a tool and a mechanism to provide more to ourselves, we miss out on all of the ways that God is trying to use us and these gifts that we've been giving to serve others and to serve him. This is where Paul goes next. He says, but those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. We all have somebody that we can think of in our life who has really bad financial habits. They have gambled their money away. They've risked what they've had irresponsibly. They didn't have proper risk management. They bought too many you know, of these new altcoins, and then when the crypto bubble popped, they were left holding the bag. They weren't able to get their money out. You know, all of these different ways. They have credit card debt upon credit card debt upon credit card debt. People who have left themselves no financial margin. It's easy. It's easy to justify. It's easy to explain away. You look around the people and everyone you seem to see seems to be doing the same thing that you're doing, acquiring more, justifying more, having more, becoming more, being recognized for being more. And you're like, I got to get in on this as well. But Paul warns us. He says, listen, Timothy, you got to let them know that if you do it this way, those who want to be rich, that desire, that longing, that craving, that disordered yearning to be rich, they fall into temptation. And they're trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and they plunge people into destruction. Upon this recognition that they have left the world of contentment and they're moving down a dangerous vicious cycle Paul says these words for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil because when you get so consumed with gaining more and acquiring more and you become so myopic on your need for more you start compromising 
what you're willing to do to gain more. For a while, it stays in a safe, healthy, responsible margin. But eventually, when that doesn't work, or when your desire for more outpaces your ability to follow the rules to gain more, you start to become willing to break the rules to gain more. You start to become willing to take advantage of people to gain more. You start to become willing to ignore the needs of others because you need more. This is one of the challenges with greed. This is one of the challenges of this vicious cycle. And the way that, reason that it's so hard to get past is because for many of us, we have justified that it's ours. We have earned it. We deserve it. We've worked for this. And if other people don't have it, it's because they didn't do what we did. And so they don't deserve what we have because we need it. Because without it, we don't have the security that we're entitled to. I had this really kind of heartbreaking, it's haunted me for the last three weeks, heartbreaking encounter uh, the other day, a couple weeks ago. Uh, we were driving down Forest, headed away from, I guess we were going northeast, west. We're going, I'm terrible with directions. We're headed west down Forest. And on the opposite side, headed east on Forest, uh, was a gentleman in a wheelchair. And he was in a wheelchair because uh, he didn't have any legs. And so he was trying to roll himself kind of up this slow incline that Forrest takes near Hillcrest. And wanting to do something but not knowing what to do, we turned the car around and I got out and I offered just to push him somewhere. And so we got to talking and he introduced himself and his, his name is Marvin. And Marvin was really troubled and disturbed by his situation at that moment in life. And there were a lot of challenges and um, uncertainty and fear. And so I offered if we could give Marvin a ride somewhere. And Marvin starts crying when I offer the ride. And I was like, well, what's going on? And he says, I can't get in your car. And I was like, well, why not? And he says, because of my condition, it's hard for me to use the bathroom. And so I've soiled myself. And I don't want to get in and mess up your car. The world that we live in is so conditioned to value luxury and more over people that Marvin has totally bought into this idea that he's not worth getting in a car for a ride because he's going to mess up a vehicle that he thinks is nice or luxurious or expensive. He doesn't want to mess up the car because it's more important and it's more valuable than Marvin is. This is what happens at its furthest extreme with greed. I'm not saying that any of us would do this, and the point of the story is certainly not me. But it's the reality that when left unchecked, when left to cycle down to its vicious extremes, unless people have utilitary value, unless they have a worth that's connected to their ability to earn or to provide or to produce, we don't treat them as human. We don't treat them as worth something. We have this, these financial languages that we talk about people. And so you end up in places where people like Marvin are unwilling to get into a car because they're worried that they're going to mess the car up. And so by the grace of God, I, I had the presence of mind to just be able to say, Marvin, I care far more about you than I do this car. 
But what Paul's warning against and what he's cautioning against is when you are so consumed with your stuff and how important your stuff is, you may not stop. And you may not let them in because they're going to mess up your nice things. And if they mess up your nice things, then it somehow messes you up and your life up. Paul goes on and he says, And in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. This is kind of the last problem with greed that we're going to talk about today because what ends up happening as we start to desire more and as we start to gain more and as we start to feel like more and become recognized for being more, we start to have a disproportionate sense of who we are. We start to evaluate our, ourselves higher than other people around us and we start to get to a place where we can solve all of our own problems and we get to a place where we have no need for God in our life because we are so much that we've got it. We can take care of it. We can solve it. And this kind of troubling kind of summarization of this point, the author Frederick Buchner, who we've been kind of quoting a lot throughout the series, describes kind of the end effect of greed this way. He says, the trouble with being rich is that since you can solve with your checkbook virtually all practical problems that bedevil ordinary people, you are left in your leisure with nothing but the great human problems to contend with. How to be happy, how to love and be loved, how to find meaning and purpose in your life. In desperation, the rich are continually tempted to believe that they can solve these problems with their checkbooks. But we all know how this ends up. Eventually, we run into a problem that we can't solve with our checkbooks. A health crisis, a divorce, a fractured relationship with a parent or with a child, some addiction in the life of a loved one, and no amount of money that we want to throw at it can solve these problems. We all know really rich and really miserable people. This is why. Because at some point, there's never enough. There's never enough that can replace the role of God in our life. But greed lies to us. It convinces us that if we could just get a little more, then we'd be okay. And so where do we go from here? If this is what greed is and if this is what it looks like in our life, how, how do we choose different? This is kind of the pattern that we've been following this whole series. Is It's not just about how terrible these vices are and now go home and feel bad about yourself. But there is an opportunity since vices and virtues are patterns and habits of actions and choices. There is an opportunity to choose different. And so as we think about moving from vice to virtue, drum roll, big shock, the virtue that we're going to encourage is generosity. But here I want to do something a little different this morning though. Thomas Aquinas actually uses a different word to define generosity, and I think it's far more helpful. He uses this word liberality, comes where we get our word liberty. It's this Latin word. And really, what he means when he says the word generosity, using the word liberality, is freedom. Everybody sing George Michael, freedom! But it's freedom from the love or desire for money or any possession money can buy. It's Feeling the pull, but being free from responding to the desire. Or being free from even longing for more. Freedom 
from living into and believing the lie and the temptation that we don't have enough just yet. It's a freedom, a peace of mind, a security and a contentment that as you are and what you have is enough. And anything in that gap, God will provide. There's a trust that puts God back in God's proper place instead of relying on ourselves and our ability with our more to solve all of the problems in our life, it reorders our loves and puts God back in God's place, recognizing that we don't have to have everything we want, and it's going to be okay. Like, sure, it would be cool to have that, and that'd be really fun if we could go there and do that, but like, even if we can't, that's all right. With what we have right now, that's enough, and actually probably enough was about 20 years ago or several commas and zeros ago. Enough is connected to need, not desire. And we may represent a diversity and a spectrum of economic statuses in this place. But we're all likely above a threshold of need. And so liberality is recognizing that and saying, okay, God, Thank you for the gifts that you've given me. And it's shifting our understanding of what those gifts are for. It's not for us. It's not to further build up and develop ourselves. But it's recognizing that we have been entrusted with gifts and tools to use to serve God and to use to serve God's people. And so the way that we develop this virtue of liberality, I think there's a couple of practices that will help us. And the first, and we talk about it each week, is this practice of self-examination. So here's some questions that I would love for you to talk about over lunch. And then report back how that conversation went. What are my current money habits? And what values do they represent? And be real honest. What are my current money habits? The way that I earn, the way that I save, the way that I spend, the way that I give, Like, what are those habits? And independent of my own justifications for those current habits, from an outside perspective, what values do they likely represent? And are those values aligned with the values, the virtues, the Christ-like image that we want to strive and aspire to? Next question to sit with, to wrestle with, to discuss in your household. Do I have the freedom to give and share gladly? Not out of guilt, not out of obligation, but do I have the freedom to give and to share gladly? When I see a need, am I excited about the opportunity to be able to meet it? Do I look for those opportunities in my life because it is something meaningful to me to be able to respond to the needs of others around me? Or when my coworker's daughter comes and wants to sell Girl Scout cookies or they're doing a raffle or something, I'm like, ugh. We can have this begrudging attitude about the way that we give money or we're asked to give money or to support causes. And then the last question, where can I demonstrate more generosity? Maybe it's within the walls of your home. Maybe it's within your friend network. Maybe it's at church. doesn't have to be this church. I would love for it to be this church, but it doesn't have to be this church. There are a lot of nonprofits 
in the city, in the state, in the nation, in the world? Where do I recognize more opportunities to be more generous? In the people that I pass on the streets, in the interactions I have with strangers, and the extra tip that I left to that waiter or that waitress, all of these little moments, where do I recognize more opportunity to be more generous? Questions to wrestle with, to think through, to discuss, to pray about. And then two practices, and we'll close in prayer. The first, it's a holy budget. Both H-O-L-Y and W-H-O-L-L-Y. This well-balanced, well-informed, prayerful budget. God, what does it look like for us to invite you into our household's finances? What does it look like, God, for you to inform how we give, how we save, and how we spend? Not based on what comes across my feed or the way that Alexa is listening in on our conversations and populates our search engines with all the things that we just talked about wanting. How do we invite God into the conversation? And then the last is to tithe. This is that biblical word that maybe you grew up with in church. It just means a one-tenth. For some of you, you're like, there's no chance that I can give one-tenth right now. But what does it look like to prayerfully commit to a percentage of your income and to give that consistently? Now, if you're at a place where you're already a percentage giver and you're giving consistently some percentage, What does it look like to invite God into the conversation? It's like, all right, God, inspire me to do more. Help me to see more opportunity to be generous. If you're at four, God, help me find the space, the margin, the discipline to get to five or to six. If you're at eight, God, how do I get to 10? If you're at 10, how do I get to 12? Some of us, if we're being honest, 15, 20, 25 is totally doable. Like, we're being real honest. Like, we could give away 25% of what we earn. It would require us to live a different kind of lifestyle, but still a lifestyle well above what we need. So how do you invite God into that conversation? To say, God, nudge me, prompt me, inspire me. When we hold on to it so tight, and we think about how do we get more than what we've had with our clenched fists around what we already keep we miss out on the opportunity to see all of the ways that God has equipped us to be the solution to a lot of prayers in the world I think sometimes people pray waiting for God to answer prayers and God waits for us to be the answer to those prayers and when we're constantly looking for ways that we can gain and acquire more we miss out on those opportunities to be the answers. And so my prayer for us as we close and invite the band up is that God would begin to just make us uncomfortable around this. Not because we're bad, but because there's room for movement. There's room for change. There's room for growth. There's room for an opportunity to reorder the way that we hold and steward all of the financial resources that we have and to play a larger part in the work that God wants to do in the world. So let me pray for us that that would be true, and then we'll invite the band to come and lead us. Gracious God, we recognize that it's always a little uncomfortable to talk about money, especially at church. So God, help us to move past that discomfort, to recognize that it is a tool that you've given us 
and an ability to steward it well. God, you have given us enough. We do not need more. And help us to share what you've already given. To serve you and to serve your people. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.